not a rabbi. I don't even have a PhD. Yet. I'm just someone who loves the Torah and who also loves German literature. The first Pasha of the Torah provides endless material for philosophical discussion. It is known in Hebrew as Bereshit, which roughly translates to in the beginning. This Pasha contains the creation of the world, the Garden of Eden, the temptation of the snake, the fall from grace, Cain and Abel, and we are even introduced to Noah at the very end. Eve's legendary bite from the fruit of the Tree of the Recognition of good and evil has functioned as a symbol across an array of artistic genres. Obviously, nothing about the significance of this parsha on Western literature and art can be overstated. The entire section is like crack cocaine for, philosoph for philosophy and literature professors. An entire book could be written on a few paragraphs or even a few lines from this parsha, so I will have to limit my focus. As I read Bereshit this week, I was drawn to one particular moment. It is a line having to do specifically with the concept of shame. After all of the animals and man and woman are created, the sentence reads that the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. However, tempted by the snake a bit later, Eve and Adam bite into the apple from the tree of the awareness of good and evil. So... As they become aware of good and evil, their first thought is their awareness that they are naked. They immediately sew themselves aprons made out of fig leaves to cover themselves. The word naked, in fact, occurs more than a few times in this section. After they were naked and not ashamed, they recognized that they were naked and became ashamed. When God calls out to Adam, he hides explaining that he didn't want God to find him naked. To this God responds, Who told you that you were naked? Here is what we can conclude so far. Knowledge of good and evil leads directly to a feeling of deep shame. Shame, moreover, is evidenced when one is afraid to be naked before others. In the case of Adam and Eve, literally naked, not symbolically. Shame is a word we toss around a lot. We use phrases like fat shaming or shame on you or that's a shame. I think we could do more to appreciate the gravity of this word shame. If there was one German philosopher who was particularly fascinated by shame, it was Friedrich Nietzsche, and he detested it. He saw shame as the most unhealthy, poisonous, unnatural emotion that a human could experience. As we all know, Animals cannot feel shame. No, your dog has never really felt embarrassed, despite that look he gave you. And we saw how before Adam and Eve ate from the tree, and were therefore more like animals than gods. They also had no concept of shame. Here are some of Nietzsche's quotes about shame. From the Gay Science, 
What do you consider the most humane? To spare someone's shame. What is the seal of liberation? To no longer be ashamed in front of oneself. From the gay science. And as long as you are in any way ashamed before yourself, you do not yet belong with us. In Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he wrote, Shame is the thief of sleep. It always creeps in late at night. But he without shame is the night's guard. Without shame, he carries his horn. Another line from Zarathustra. Oh, my friends, speak, so speak those who know. Shame, shame, shame. That is the story of humanity. So it's fair to say that Nietzsche despised shame. But why? What is so bad about shame? First of all, it should be said that nothing infuriated Nietzsche more than to see a human pretending like he didn't have human desires, urges, instincts. And what particularly angered Nietzsche was when he saw people tricking themselves into believing their denial of their human drives could actually be something admirable. For example, let's say you are poor and you see someone who is wealthy. Nietzsche would have an issue if the poor person became a bit jealous of the rich person. But what would really have driven Nietzsche up the wall is if the poor person actually judged the rich person and theorized and philosophized that the act of being rich itself is somehow evil. Nietzsche would call this resentiment, a French word similar to resentment. Not only did the poor person envy the rich person, he actually went so far as to deny this feeling of envy to himself and to pretend as though he were somehow more holy and better for being poor. Underneath all of this, Nietzsche would say, lies shame. The poor person cannot reconcile his human desires, the will to be more wealthy and more powerful, with the moral ideology he created, that being wealthy is evil. Now, at this point you might be thinking, isn't shame good sometimes? After all, if someone does something evil, then shouldn't they feel ashamed? Here, it's important to distinguish between shame and guilt. A way to think about this difference is that guilt is feeling bad about something you've done, whereas shame is to feel bad about who you are. Have you ever seen mafia movies where one of the mob bosses shows his softer side and admits he committed some crime he shouldn't have, that he regrets? Despite his admission of guilt and regret, it is clear that the mobster doesn't feel shame, that is, he still retains pride in who he is at his core. In short, he compartmentalizes his wrongdoing. In Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial, the main character, Joseph K., is in many ways the opposite of a mobster. He is polite, law-abiding, concerned with what others think of him, obeys all social norms. At the beginning of the story, Joseph K. is arrested, despite not having committed any crime. He pleads to the authorities that he has not broken any laws, yet he remains under arrest and, spoiler alert, is ultimately executed. Joseph K. seems to confuse guilt with shame. He has, done, he has not done anything wrong, which he should feel guilty about, but in a sense his entire life is wrong, and for that he feels shame. 
Shame, indeed, hangs over the entire novel. Like Eve, Joseph K. symbolically takes a bite from an apple he has on his nightstand when he is first arrested. He becomes paranoid about his neighbors watching his arrest from across the street, hiding from their eyes just as Adam and Eve hid from God in the Garden of Eden. Finally, at the end of the novel, after Kay is executed for his unknown crime, the last line reads, quote, Only the shame would outlive him. All of this torment and punishment for Joseph K., despite having tried to live an ethical life, this is the power of shame. We can see how Nietzsche would have viewed a mobster's way of thinking, despite the terrible crimes which mobsters commit, as actually healthier and more vibrant than Joseph K.'s. Nietzsche saw shame as sickly. He wrote in the Gene- Genealogy of Morals, published in 1888, I want to state very clearly that in that period when human beings had not yet become ashamed of their cruelty, life on earth was happier than it is today, now that we have our pessimists. The darkening of heaven over men's heads has always increased alarmingly in proportion to the growth of human beings' shame before human beings. Today we witness sickly mollycoddling and moralizing, thanks to which the animal man finally learns to feel shame about all his instincts. On his way to becoming an angel, not to use a harsher word here, man cultivated for himself that upset stomach and that furry tongue, which not only made the joy and innocence of the animal repulsive, but also made life itself distasteful. Now at this point you might be wondering, is Nietzsche telling me that I should be a bad person? That I should behave like a mobster? No. First, as a kind of aside, We should note that Nietzsche himself was actually quite a kind and generous and law-abiding person. I think what Nietzsche is saying is that we should be honest with ourselves about our true motives and true drives, not to disguise them to others or to ourselves, and to show ourselves self-compassion. To accept that even if we have done something wrong, that doesn't mean we ourselves are wrong. Even worse is if we really have done nothing wrong and we still feel shame. I mean, how unhealthy is that, when you really think about it? The morals of our society are, to say the least, a bit misguided. Our first reaction to feelings of shame is repentance. But repentance, in fact, is the last thing you should do when you feel shame. For guilt, repentance may be appropriate. But counterintuitively, the antidote to shame is not repentance, but self-love and self-compassion. Shame is, at its core, self-hatred. Pride and honesty with oneself are, at their core, self-love. Shame and self-love cannot coexist. And we can only love ourselves if we accept who we actually are. And we must acknowledge that on many levels, we are still animals. And there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, in many ways, we are rather different from animals. My dog, for example, noble as she carries herself and adorable as she is, could never record this podcast or conceive of these ideas. But in many ways, my dog and I have an awful lot in common, more than I think most people would care to admit. Where do morality and good and evil fit into this? Remember, Adam and Eve did not just eat from any tree, 
but from the tree that gives one knowledge of good and evil. Somehow, understanding morality leads to shame. But should it? Must it? Actually, we would think it would be the opposite, that the more we understand good and evil, the more we can know how to behave properly, the more we can avoid feeling shame. But it doesn't seem to work like this. However, at the same time, greater knowledge of morality also does not lead to greater feelings of shame. After all, God is the supreme judge of morality, and there is no indication in the Torah that God ever feels shame. This is because, again, shame must be kept separate from guilt. You will notice that Adam and Eve do not hide from God or put on fig leaves as clothes because they feel guilty about disobeying God and eating from the tree. Rather, they feel shame for being naked. Shame for being naked. Here, the Torah could not be more explicit that Adam and Eve feel a kind of disgust with who they are, not for what they did. But who are they? Well, they are now humans because they understand morality. So we might say they're ashamed of being human. But more importantly, they seem to be ashamed of understanding morality. Why should shame and morality be related? The answer is not as simple as you might think. Here, I think we need to make another distinction between, mora- between morality and moralizing. Morality is not shameful, but moralizing seems to be intertwined with shame. How often have we encountered moralizers who are not really concerned with morality at all, but with, instead, their own passive-aggressive power grabs? Here, we return again to Nietzsche. As much as as Nietzsche despised shame, he equally despised moralizing. This is not a coincidence, because for Nietzsche... They were one and the same. Now, this is not a fancy way of saying, judge not lest ye be judged. Rather, for Nietzsche, it is to adopt the attitude of the poor person, the slave, alluded to earlier. When one has a kind of knee-jerk impulse to immediately condemn certain actions as evil and to praise others as good, he is exploiting morality as a way of feeling more comfortable with his own station in life. In Beyond Good and Evil, Jenseits von Gut und Böse, Nietzsche wrote that, quote, For someone to be ashamed of his immorality, that is a step on the staircase at the end of which he is also ashamed of his morality. What is this quote saying? When one feels shame for immorality, eventually one feels shame for morality. It seems to be saying that when one feels shame for being human, one eventually turns to moralizing which is just a further manifestation of shame. Is this not the case of Adam and Eve? When they ate from the tree providing knowledge of good and evil, they were given the power to feel shame at being human and to moralize simultaneously. Now here you might think, why does understanding good and evil lead to moralization and shame? After all, there are many great figures in history who understood good and evil and were not moralizers, and were not ashamed. I believe here the Torah is using the phrase good and evil a bit ironically. After all, do Adam and Eve suddenly morph into great and wise sages after eating from the tree? No. They remain rather childlike and uninformed about the ways of the world. 
Good and evil here seems to stand for a kind of crude, simplistic, superficial understanding of morality. Indeed, the kind of morality known to moralizers. Throughout the rest of the Torah, of course, we have great figures who will feel guilt, and perhaps sometimes even shame. For example, when Joseph's brothers attempt to murder their younger brother Joseph, they do not succeed, and Joseph winds up becoming second in command later in life to the Pharaoh in Egypt. Decades later, the brothers, who had once tried to murder Joseph, must prostrate themselves before him. This is, in fact, one of the most moving scenes in the entire Torah, to which we will return in a future episode. And indeed, the brothers should feel guilt, and perhaps, in this instance, even shame, considering how heinous the offense was. But what makes them different from Adam and Eve? By now, the answer should be obvious. The brothers felt this sorrow as a result of committing a series of specific actions. This would make their feeling more akin to guilt than to shame. With Adam and Eve, we have perhaps the only characters in the Torah who feel true shame, that is, shame over who they are at their core. No other figures from the Torah demonstrate this phenomenon. We would need to wait for a modern literary character like Joseph K., before again encountering a figure who feels this deep embarrassment for no ostensible reason. The only reason Adam and Eve feel bad is because they're naked. Again, this word naked appears over and over in the passage. And indeed, the last gift God gives them before escorting them out of Eden is to clothe them with garments of skin, significant upgrades from the fig leaves they had been wearing before. Here again, the Torah is a bit ironic. Garments of skin could naturally mean leather or the equivalent, but in a sense, it is also as though God is giving them new skin to cover up who they really are. It is a rather grotesque gesture in which Adam and Eve must clothe their entire bodies in a kind of mask in order to feel right with themselves. Freud would perhaps have substituted defense mechanisms or repression for the skin which God used to clothe the first humans. I recently learned that the word in German for the pubic bone is Schambein. That is, the bone around your pelvic area, your so-called private parts, would literally translate in German to bone of shame. Native German speakers are not aware of the connection their language here makes between sexuality and shame. Native speakers generally speak their language unconsciously, unaware of the connotations and etymologies of their words. But I noticed it right away, and was quite amused, if also a bit discontented. Schambein. Perhaps it is time that we use the story of Adam and Eve and the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche to find a replacement for this most moralizing of words. Of war and peace, the truth just twists its curfew gull, it glides Upon four-legged forest clouds, the cowboy angel rides With his candle lit into the sun 
though its glow is waxed in black All except when neath the trees of Eden The lamppost stands with folded arms Its iron claws attached To curbs neath holes where babies wail Though its shadow's metal badge All in all can only fall With a crashing but meaningless blow No sound ever comes from the gates of Eden The savage soldier sticks his head in sand and then complains Unto the shoeless hunter who's gone deaf but still remains Upon the beach where hound dogs bay at ships with tattooed sails Heading for the gates of Eden With a time-rusted compass blade Aladdin and his lamp Sits with utopian hermit monks Side saddle on the golden calf And on their promises of paradise You will not hear a laugh All except inside the gates of Eden Relationships of ownership They whisper in the wings To those condemned to act accordingly And wait for succeeding kings And I try to harmonize with songs The lonesome sparrow sings There are no kings inside the gates of Eden The motorcycle black Madonna Two-wheeled gypsy queen And her silver-studded phantom Caused the gray flannel dwarf to scream As he weeps to wicked birds of prey Who pick up on his breadcrumb sins And there are no sins inside the gates of Eden The kingdoms of experience And the precious winds they rot While paupers change possessions Each one wishing for what the other has got And the princess and the prince discuss What's real and what is not It doesn't matter inside the gates of Eden The 
The foreign sun it squints upon a bed that is never mine. As friends and other strangers from their fates try to resign, leaving men wholly, totally free to do anything they wish to do but die. Trials inside the gates of Eden. At dawn, my lover comes to me and tells me of her dreams. With no attempts to shovel a glimpse into the ditch of what each one means. At times, I think. There are no words but these to tell what's true, and there are no truths outside the gates of Eden.